The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, is an independent federal government regulatory agency. The SEC supposedly promotes full public disclosure and protects investors against fraudulent and manipulated practices in the market. But Jay, is the SEC really doing this when it comes to their Environment, Social Governance, or ESG, proposed rule? Tom, I think they're doing almost the opposite. It it has shocked me. I mean, I've followed the SEC from uh, the Depression in the 20s, a couple of years before my time, and uh, really saw it as a watchdog, uh, especially most of it got educated about the SEC during the Madoff horrible scandal. And we realized if we didn't before that the SEC was supposed to be watching to make sure that things like the Madoff situation did not occur. But in recent years, I've seen them get involved uh, in politics that has nothing to do with ensuring uh, good investment by uh, by the public. They've gotten into things like uh, environmental problems, climate change problems, how a company governs itself, uh, how it deals with various environmental problems, areas that I think that have uh, were never in their area of their purview of what they should be controlling. So uh, it's really become, a, in my mind, a terrible organization. And we'll know more about that from our guest today. Yeah, for sure. Our guest today is Dr. Marlo Lewis, a senior fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based Competitive Enterprise Institute, or CEI. Marlo holds a Ph.D. in government from Harvard University and a B.A. in political science from Claremont McKenna College in California. His interests include the science, economics, and politics of global warming policy, the precautionary principle, environmentalism, and religion, and the moral basis of free enterprise. Marlo has been published in numerous magazines and journals and has appeared on various television and radio programs. Prior to joining CEI, he served as Director of External Relations at the Reason Foundation in Los Angeles. And before that, Marlo held various jobs with the federal government and also has been a visiting assistant professor of political science at Claremont McKenna College. So welcome to the show, Marlo. Hey, thanks, uh, Jay and Tom. It's really great to be with you guys. Yeah, great. Well, Marlo, uh, you might remember that I'm a, a Princeton graduate, so we rarely allow Harvard people on the show. Uh, we're making an exception <laughs> with you. And, uh, gee, I, I'm one, this will show whether you're really still a Harvard fan. Uh, who won the football championship last weekend? It was between Harvard and Yale. 
<laughs> You're asking the wrong guy. Okay, there we go. There we go. See, that's uh, yeah. No spirit. I mean, no spirit at all. <laughs> no, I've never. I've never. First of all, I've never fancied myself a Harvard man. I went to graduate school there, so I I went to undergraduate at Claremont McKenna College. And the other the other thing is that even though I'm a physically active senior, I've never been really much of a sports watcher. So I, I, I typically don't spend my Sundays watching professional sports or college college teams play. So I don't keep up with it. So, I, I mean, I, I could take a blind guess and, and I have maybe a 50% chance of getting it right. Correct. <laughs> I don't know. The, I do not know the answer. I lost track uh, during the game, never found out who won. So it doesn't matter. And I'm glad to hear you spend your Sundays perhaps doing something more uh, useful. I'm, I'm both a competitor and a fan uh, and, and enjoy it. I think uh, it, it really is an escape from things for the public in general to watch uh, game. So I'm, I'm for it either way. Well, you heard me in the opening mention uh, social environment and government issues that the Securities and Cha Exchange Commission have taken up. I'm sure you would agree they should have no involvement in Sim simply when they were formed. That was not the idea. And it must be shocking to a lot of people that they're getting involved in uh, in issues that they shouldn't. Uh, how has this come about? Well, first, let me just say that if you look at the uh, Securities and Exchange Act, you won't find the words global, climate, warming, <laughs> pollution, carbon, mitigation. So yeah, this was not in the, in the original mandate for this agency at all. And it came about, well, it's come about actually over a period of a decade because there are all these, you might call them woke investor types, fans of environment, social governance investing, who think that uh, traditional financial criteria are not enough to guide investment properly, that people should not only do well by investing, but should do good uh, by investing and doing good according, of, of course, to their uh, priorities, their policy priorities. And so there's been pressure over the years for the FEC, sorry, the SEC. So there's been pressure over the years for the Security and Exchange Commission to encourage or pressure uh, companies that are publicly traded to keep track of the environmental risks, uh, especially the climate-related risks that their investments may be exposed to either through the physical impacts of climate change or what is more actually reasonable or feasible in some cases, the policy and liability, the litigation risks from climate policies. But so this really has now come to a head under the Biden administration because the Biden administration from day one has decided that the most urgent challenge or crisis facing the world is climate change. And the biggest risk facing the U.S. economy is somehow climate change. And so there is what they call a whole of government or government wide approach to the alleged climate crisis that the Biden administration has instructed all agencies, all executive agencies to prioritize. 
And that somehow has spilled over the Washington swamp being what it is into the independent agencies, which aren't directly and statutorily under the thumb of the president. The SEC is an independent agency, yet it has now prioritized the alleged climate crisis. And there isn't a a climate crisis. We can get into that. Uh, And so they now want publicly traded companies when they submit their filings to the SEC to enumerate in in copious detail the climate-related risks to which the uh, company's investments, activities, transactions are somehow exposed. And uh, they say that these should be material risks. But, you know, if you think that it's an existential threat, if you think climate change is an existential threat, uh, threat, then you can portray almost anything as a material risk. And not only do they want the companies to prioritize climate factors in their reporting, but also in their governance, in their governing structures, they want experts uh, in climate risk to be hired by companies to be uh, promoted according to their ability to manage these risks. They want experts and people knowledgeable about climate change on the corporate boards to ensure accountability. And so what it is really is it's a plan to kind of take over the publicly traded companies in the United States uh, for climate change policy purposes. I didn't put that very well. And so, no, no, uh, you have really, you have done a a, a magnificent job. Marlo, I thought I would back up on that last statement, made me say it a little better. No, you've done fine. And you've answered it in two ways. The the, the beginning of your your statement basically was telling me that the Security and Exchange Commission was pandering uh, to the people that they were, were watchdogs of. They made a decision on their own first, that uh, they would have more fans who would like what they do uh, by taking these positions. Then, of course, you enlightened me far further. I had no idea that this whole directive came down from the administration at the top to every single agency to make climate change uh, a, a top priority. Before we go further this on the SEC, uh, I will tell our audience what they hear from me uh, every week, those who listen every week, uh, reinforcing the fact not only is there no climate catastrophe or disaster, mankind has zero impact on the temperature of this planet or really anything that goes on in the planet. It's forces in our solar system and the variability of our sun that control our climate. So everything that is being done under this, the hugest lie uh, that has ever been told to the human race is all 100% false, and it will end. It will end because at some point, they're driving the world to destroy life on Earth. I mean, if we really keep doing away with fossil fuels, uh, the things that we will no longer have in our standard of living will mount up until were we to reach net zero by 2050, which they want, which cannot happen, there'd be no life on Earth. Uh, you, you simply have to have carbon dioxide for uh, life to prosper, whether it's plants, animals, or people. So we're uh, on a railroad train to disaster. Uh, whether it's going to come to a head in uh, five years or 10 years, 
or 20. I'm not sure. I'll take a guess at 10, but I'm hopefully at five because everything they want to do is disastrous to life uh, as we know it. So, uh, Marla, you've done a tremendous job explaining why it is where it is. And these are things I had no idea. Now, it appears there is no one at the Security and Exchange Commission that has any training in science to recognize that impacts in storm management relating to increase in population. We have more, we have more injuries to people because more people live where the storm is now and wasn't before. I mean, there's so much technical information that has to be understood to accept the kind of conclusions that are handed down from the top of the government to these agencies. How do they get by making decisions based on their total lack of training and knowledge? Well, it's, it's a big echo chamber. And it, a lot of it emanates from the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, also from the National Climate Assessment Report that the US government puts out every, every four to five years. And what I showed in a, uh, I wrote this with the late Pat Michaels, my, my beloved friend and colleague, and Kevin Diarotna of the, the Heritage Foundation, we showed that all of these assessments, um, reports that underpin the SEC's proposal uh, basically have three fallacies. Um, I don't go quite as far as you do, Jay, in saying that there is no impact of greenhouse gas emissions on global temperatures. But what- oh, Wait, wait, let me, let me stop you there for a moment. Yep. But you would say that it's so small it would have no impact at all, and we've been unable to pin it down. Would you agree with that? Well, I don't know if it would have no impact at all, but it's it's so far short of catastrophe and so far smaller than the costs that would be imposed by these policies that, that, that attempt to somehow stabilize the climate. Um, in other words, we have much more to fear from climate policy than from climate change itself. And this is a the SEC proposal is a prime example. You know, if you look at cap and trade, which was the big, the hot climate policy of the mid 2000s, if you look at what Obama proposed at one point, which was a national clean energy standard, of basically taking these Soviet style production quota for renewable energy, at, which are very uh, prolific at the state levels and imposing them nationally, or, or just a carbon tax, which is the most obvious way of attacking fossil fuels and, and rendering affordable energy uneconomic. These are all attempts really to drive capital out of the fossil fuel sector and into the politically preferred industries of the future, so-called, namely wind and solar, uh, you know, and, and maybe some other kind of uh, exotic renewable energy technology, which isn't economical right now, like clean hydrogen. We don't have to get into what that means, but that's that's something that they claim is, oh yeah, that's just uh, 10 years away. But anyway, all of those are attempts really for the government to take control of the commanding height of a modern economy, which is its financial sector and cap private capital investments and redirect it for the, for the sake of the politically well-connected. And, and, and the SEC proposal just does that in spades and nakedly. I mean, that's really what it's about. The SEC thinks now that its mission is to align private capital investment with the most aggressive form 
of the climate agenda, which the President Biden has very clearly articulated. He wants U.S. fossil fuel emissions to be cut in half by 2030. And there's no known way to do that right now, except by forcing America to not use half of all the fossil fuels that it's currently using in just the next eight years, and then zero, you know, net zero by 2050. So that's the point. And, and it's to create, you know, liabilities so that so that corporations can be sued if they're not actually doing, you know, marching in lockstep with this agenda over the next couple of decades. But the methodology that underpins this claim of an impending climate crisis are one climate models which continually overpredict warming that's already occurred. I mean, this shows they can't even hindcast what's happened. And so uh, they overshoot the observed warming since 1979, because that's when the satellite era of observations began. They overshoot that by at least a factor of two on average. And no matter how they're tuned to replicate earlier decades, they can't seem to get the tropical troposphere, which is the one area of the climate, it's key area, that's the mid-atmosphere, the bulk atmosphere in the tropics, where they haven't actually tuned the models in advance to replicate what's happened there. And so when they run the models, you always get on average twice as much, and some models are three and four times as much warming as been observed. So they have hot models, and then they run those with unrealistic emission scenarios there's one called RCP 8.5, which is their favorite. And it's been used in literally thousands of studies to project future warming. And RCP 8.5 uh, was built, it's actually a derivative from a, a scenario, an emission scenario that was developed before the fracking revolution, before natural gas became plentiful and cheap. And so RCP 8.5 assumes that by the year 2100, the amount of energy that comes from coal in the global economy will increase by 10 times. This is so unrealistic. Nobody believes that this is in any way plausible, but it's still used or versions of it are still used to be fed into these overheated models. So you have an overheated emission scenario fed into the models. And then on top of that, they use these anemic, feeble assumptions about mankind's ability to adapt to climate change. I mean, our adaptation is unbelievable. As you guys know, if you look at the number of people who died annually in the 1920s, 100 years ago, it was about, and died in, from weather-related disasters, hurricanes, wildfires, floods, you know, you name it, it was about 485,000 people a year. In 2021, it was 6,000 people. It was a almost a 90% drop in the aggregate death related to extreme weather over the past 100 years. This was not in spite of fossil fuels, but largely because of the wealth and technology supported by fossil fuels. And so anyway, they assume that, oh, we're just, the humanity is like a deer caught in the headlights. We won't know what hit us. Climate change is just too rapid, too extreme, and of course it's not, and we won't be able to adapt to it, and we're all going to die. And that's why you get all of these people saying, oh, we only have 12 years you know, to save civilization, and it is just utter nonsense. And so 
what we did when we filed our comments to the Securities and Exchange Commission, we showed that not only is the whole project that the SEC is engaged in here based on these three major fallacies because the SEC and all the people who are proponents of environment, social governance, ESG investing, rely on reports like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and the US National Climate Assessment, which are built on these three methodological malpractices. But then the individual advocates like BlackRock and McKenzie, all of these people you know, with who are either consultants or managers of trillions of dollars of invested wealth, whenever they actually do their own studies of climate impacts, they not only use the, these flawed methods, but they juice them up. You know, like they'll, they'll take a climate model that already overpredicts warming and they'll tweak it so as to exaggerate what are called tail risks, you know, so that the 1% probability outcome becomes 5%. And they'll say, oh, look, you know, it's worse than we thought. And so that permeates this whole discussion. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. The Guardian uh, newspaper just had an article in which they said that a fair number of the parties at the COP27 conference were not happy with the IPCC forecast. So instead, they were pushing the idea that there's tipping points where we're going to see a sudden runaway of all these effects that the IPCC forecast. So the IPCC itself is not extreme enough for them now. So now they're pushing the whole idea of tipping points. And yet, you know, with Chatelier's principle, and Jay, you probably know this uh, as, a, as a scientist, you know, the, the whole idea is that most feedback in nature is negative. Otherwise, yes. we'd see a runaway greenhouse effect long ago. You know, everything, we would have gone to hell in a handbasket years ago. <laughs> You're absolutely right, Tom. Uh, you, you nailed that. And, you know, if you look at, say, the, the University of Alabama Huntsville uh, satellite record, the warming rate since 1979 has, has been 0.13 degrees Celsius per decade, which adds up to what? In a hundred, over a hundred year period, 1.3 degrees. Yeah. And, you know, and so, but the thing is, it hasn't accelerated. In fact, it's, you know, it used to be 0.16. And now, it, you know, for the last five years or so, five, 10 years, it's been 0 0.14, 0 0.1. Now it's 0.13. So there isn't this acceleration. It's just yeah. nonsense. Well, I think Richard Lindzen was saying that the change in temperature in the last century is so small that if we didn't have climatologists and meteorologists to tell us about it, nobody would even know in their lifetime. That is correct. And I can say I've lived in the Washington, D.C. area now for 35 years. And so, you know what the difference between climate and weather, you know, is the length of time, you know, yeah. over which you can average the weather. And for some reason, these climatologists claim 30 years is long enough to look at the weather. And I can tell you that the, the change from summer to fall always comes in the first week of September. It always has. I mean, I have not noticed any, you know, and so like if I wasn't aware that climate change was an issue, I wouldn't even wonder about this, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like, oh, well, it's September. I got to start wearing sweaters again, you know? <laughs> Marlo, if the SEC is no longer involved specifically in reducing investment risk. I'm beginning to think uh, they're all Marxists and that they recognize that if the country follows the path that they're putting us on, 
as is being done by our entire government, we will become a communist country where the leaders control everything and uh, we will no longer be democratic. It looks like a, a terrible direction for our nation and the SEC is uh, one of the tools in making it so. Do you think the members of the SEC are by and large all socialists, Marxists, progressive liberals, uh, not really caring about risk analysis? What do you think? Well, I think I think many of them are progressives. The, one of the great exceptions is Hester Pierce, and she's brilliant. And you know, she has said, "Look, we are not the Securities and Environment Agency or the Securities and Climate Agency." But I mean, you're right. I mean, that's the whole point of all this, all these progressive uh, ideologies. It's to um, have the uh, the self-selected best and brightest you know, be put in positions of authority with no real political accountability to the people uh, who have to bear the costs of their agendas. And what you said, Jay, about about how they're no longer looking at at really um, minimizing the risks to shareholders is absolutely right. In fact, what's the real Orwellian inversion here is that their proposal will dramatically increase the risks to shareholders. I mean, for example, what what they're trying to do is act as a kind of uh, financial regulatory force multiplier for the whole net zero agenda. Now, this this will be a terrible thing for wealth building in the United States. You know, if we actually have regulatory policies in place or tax policies in place to force America off of fossil fuels, this country will be a very poor place to invest. You'll have blackouts, rolling blackouts and uh, very high cost energy. And everything will cost a ton to transport, to manufacture. And if you look at any of the studies about, let's say, carbon taxes, which are allegedly the most efficient form of decarbonizing an economy, there was one study uh, uh, a few years back Bjorn Lomborg wrote it up in the Wall Street Journal, Peng et al., who says, you know, you know what it would take to actually get net zero by 2050? Well, even if you had a carbon tax of $1,500 a ton, which is uh, basically about 10 times uh, the carbon tax that the Biden administration would currently support based on its social cost of carbon studies, that that would only get you 80% of the way to, uh, you know, to net zero. And you'd really need, you'd really need something way up about $800 a ton. And so basically the annual cost per household by the time you got to 2050 would be something like $11,300 a year. And it would cost the economy over 11%. So it was like, it would like be the equivalent of, of all the money that we in terms of the proportion of the economy, everything that we currently spend on Medicare, Medicaid, and uh, and Social Security would go into decarbonization. I mean, this the the, the risk to the U.S. economy is immense. Then also consider that this green economy of the future that they want all depends on minerals. Uh, what are called energy transition minerals like lithium and cobalt and nickel and uh, and copper 
and uh, uh, silicon in in quantities and in qualities that just do not exist now that you'd have that basically the, the the mineral inputs that would be required would have to be you know four to eight times globally what what is now being mined and processed and all of that would have to scale up and of course we know that environmentalists just love mining and they just love <laughs> they love you know industrial processing of mined materials which of course have no emissions i mean and then on top of that china basically has the lock on mineral processing for the globe it's like 80% of all the all the mineral processing for these minerals that are required for electric vehicles for uh, you know batteries for these vehicles for wind turbines solar panels you know it's all in china so instead of the position of energy dominance that the united states had under the trump administration and was on its way to you know locking into place for several decades will be now replaced with a china centric global economy in which the energy assets of the world are more concentrated in china than they used to be in OPEC when OPEC ruled that marketplace. And so now it is, a, is an America that is increasingly dependent on China for energy transition minerals and for OPEC and Venezuela for its oil and gas because the Biden administration doesn't want us to produce our own energy. Is that a, an America that is a secure place for wealth building and investment, will foreigners want to park their capital in the United States when we, when our energy supply is so totally dependent on people other than the United States, many of whom are hostile to us? Th these are horrendous risks, and perhaps I think one that that really hits home here is remember Solyndra. I think a lot of your listeners will remember Solyndra. That was the solar panel company that the Obama-Biden administration subsidized with guaranteed loans totaling $535 million. And Vice President Biden at the time went out to the groundbreaking uh, ceremony in California for Solyndra. He was joined by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, and Stephen Chu, who was the energy secretary, and they all glo gloated about how this was the wave of the future. These were the jobs that couldn't be that couldn't be exported or outsourced. These were the jobs of the future, you know. And then two years later to the day, Solyndra went bankrupt, and all those jobs disappeared. And that was just one of numerous companies that failed under what was then only a $30 billion program. And now with this whole of government approach and the SEC getting involved to try to direct trillions of dollars of capital into these businesses that really don't, many of which would not exist but for subsidies or mandates. I mean, that is an enormous risk to taxpayers, shareholders, to the economy. How many cylindras will we be experiencing if this agenda is actually allowed to go forward? Well, I'll, I'll answer that question with just many, many, and this is a good time to take a break. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? 
Well, now there is, and it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan, a plan based on real science that responds to the real world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure, a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. The spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. We are the voice of a nation, the American nation that is. This is Malcolm Out Loud. I invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com, where the fight for liberty and justice continues. America Out Loud Talk Radio. So we're back with Dr. Marlo Lewis, a senior fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based Competitive Enterprise Institute. We're talking about what is driving the climate scare. Marlo, could you tell us? I mean, you were implying that government thinks they run everything better than free enterprise. That's one of the drivers. But what are the other drivers, in your opinion, behind this ludicrous scare that is really bankrupting the world? Well, there there are many factors. And probably I'll think of some after the show that I, oh, I wish I had (laughs) mentioned that one. But, uh, But anyway... Look, uh, government is uh, is necessary. Uh, that we learned that from the Federalist Paper. I think I think it was Hamilton who said that there's nothing more evidently necessary for human society than government. But as we also know from George Washington, government is like fire. You know, uh, it easily rages out of control because 
the people who are attracted to government are people who are attracted to power. Uh, and we know from another great thinker, Lord Acton, that power tends to, cor to corrupt or the love of power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So there is always uh, a danger in every society at any time that uh, the more ambitious people within it will figure out ways of using government to gain more power for themselves and their friends uh, than would be healthy or safe for the rest of us. And, and you've had since the uh, late 19th century, a progressive movement in the United States that has in various ways rejected the founder's vision of a constitution which has, uh, which has limited powers and which is held in check uh, by various checks and balances and the separation of powers. And so there's always a chafing against those constraints by people who want more. But in order to persuade the governed to put up with, with greater and greater impositions of taxes or regulations or spending, which seems to be unsustainable uh, because, of, because it, it, it's always running a chronic deficit, um, you have to have rationales. And, and if you're going to actually deploy these rationales persuasively, you've got to persuade yourself of them as well. So in other words, I think there, I mean, I've been in Washington a while, you know, for several decades. And I think that there are, uh, although there's a whole lot of cynicism on the part of many people, it's never complete. You know, most people really want to believe that they are, that they are doing something for the good of mankind, even though, even though they, they, they know full well that if they succeed, they'll be more powerful, they'll be more important, they'll be more likely to have uh, lucrative career opportunities. So, but I think it all, I think a, a big part of it relates to the, the love of power uh, because, not, because look, you know, you can think of various rationales for expanding government's reach. One of them that was uh, used for decades was interstate commerce. What, they claimed that everything is in the, eventually they got to the point where they claimed that everything is in the stream of interstate commerce, including someone who raises chickens in his backyard, because that means that he's not buying chickens you know, from uh, from someone who's producing them from out of state. And because it's in the stream of interstate commerce, it can be regulated by the federal government. Well, the environment is even more inclusive than than interstate commerce. Uh, I remember there was one environmental scholar who said who answered the question, what is the environment? He said the environment is the universe and its surroundings. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, and so, well, okay, well, the, but the climate system, see, if the climate is endangered, basically, then uh, then everybody's business is your business if you're in government, because the whole world is now your responsibility and you have to rescue the whole world. And my gosh, to do that, you're going to have to you're going to have to have some kind of governance system for the world. And you're going to have to you're going to have to somehow control the wealth of the world uh, in order to make people 
you know, buy the right kinds of cars and 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 get energy from the right types of sources. And then and then, you know, what we just saw in at COP27, the whole issue now, it's become naked. Nobody cannot know what's going on now because wealth and what they call loss and damage uh, with, with, with basically all the developing countries are saying, we need $2 trillion a year from you folks. You know, the United States, Japan, Australia, basically the first world countries. And we need $2 trillion of your money every year because we're exposed to extreme weather which all of which is the result of climate change. Well, of course, we know that that is total hokum. Uh, but but the thing is, who run a lot of those developing countries that are demanding this now? They aren't small R Republicans, most of them. These are, in many cases, autocratic, despotic countries. Uh, and and so these people now hobnob with our with our best and brightest, our, you know, golden elites, uh, who, who think they know what's best for us. And so it's, you know, well, Marlo, it, there's a great deal Marlo, of power here to be seized and applied, right. you know, Marlo, against you the little have, guy. You have uh, stripped the curtain away from what is going on. Yeah. And uh, a number of my colleagues, as, as yours as well, were in Egypt for COP27. Uh, and you're correct. They stand naked in front of us, uh, recognizing it has nothing to do with climate whatsoever. It has only to do with uh, wealth distribution. Mm -hmm. And this has been going on since the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, in which uh, much of Russia was destroyed. And they really never got a foothold in taking over the world until the environmental issue came about. Uh, we have talked on this program about a, an Italian uh, communist by the name of Antonio I think Frashi, I can't remember his last name for a oh, second. Gram here. Gramsci? Gr Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, Gramsci. Right. Gramsci in the 30s said, we've got to take over all the institutions. We have to march through all the institutions and take them over little by little, putting in liberals and progressives. And uh, that is exactly what happened. And it's been going on for certainly half a century. But when they hit on the environment as being an issue that would encompass everything, as you pointed out a moment ago, Marlo, they really had a winner because they, they're never without a counter that, to anything that happened. And now they're trying to collect money uh, from the developed countries for any weather event in their countries that they claim is caused by our use of fossil fuel. And when you mention accurately that they're demanding essentially $2 trillion a year, the public knows that money is not available, can't be available. They're never going to get it. Uh, so, you know, they're really tussling with with windmills, so to speak, trying to get something that uh, can never happen. Well, that might be a source of optimism. And the audience needs to understand mm -hmm. that all of this miserable ideas that they are clearly are moving along their path can never happen. And eventually people are going to wake up. I thought they would wake up in the midterm elections and throw out this horrible government that controls us now. They did not. Obviously, in my mind, they haven't suffered enough. We'll see how things are. Uh, they'll have two more years of, of misery. Uh, it's a question of how much the House now no longer under Democratic leadership with a thin rep uh, Republican majority can uh, alter the misery, the tyranny 
that is going on. They do have control over the budget. And if they have collectively all the Republicans behind them, they can theoretically stop the expenditure of any more money in a direction that hurts mankind rather uh, than helps it. So I still have a bit of optimism, but we're still on a, uh, a very negative path. Yes, I would I would concur with that. And and actually, you mentioned the other big factor that came to mind, but I didn't get to because, you know, you could you could just talk for hours about this. But education, I mean, our younger generations are are being so maleducated uh, and a lot of them really believe that they have a right not to hear views that conflict with their own. In other words, that censorship is their right to impose on other people. Um, and they, um, you know, a lot of them think now that consensus is some kind of uh, test of scientific truth, uh, you know, not recognizing that it's basically a political idea. And so that's, yeah, that's really, uh, that's really a, a huge problem is that, you know, that, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I know Gramsci had this idea of the long march through the institutions, but the thing is that living uh, in an academic environment naturally attracts people um, who love to complain and you know love to you know don't don't want to be accountable for anything they they really do. I mean, they don't really make anything or provide services uh, in in a marketplace you know where they face competition. Uh, especially if they're tenured already, you know, uh, but they're free to they're free to indoctrinate the young. And it that's that's the power that they feel. That's what attracts them is they're molding young minds and they've had decades of doing it. So that's that's a huge problem. Now, I think you're also absolutely correct, Jay, that what they're pushing us toward is a level of misery because it's based on unreality that will eventually bring this house of cards crashing down. You know, Britain, for the first time in decades, uh, they basically has lost, you know, the standard of living has declined by 7% in just the last year. And this has never happened, you know, since the Second World War. And, and yet, you know, Liz Truss, who was briefly prime minister, you know, had a few sensible ideas like, uh, like getting rid of climate taxes and she was given the boot. And so, you know, we'll see it. Apparently the Brits with their stiff upper, li upper lips <laughs> are, are willing to endure more of this pain. And, and of course, you know, even if Britain sim you know, simply disappeared uh, from the face of the earth, it would make no measurable difference. Uh, even if you assume that, that carbon dioxide emissions influence global temperature, it would make no me measurable difference to the climate. Uh, you know, for hundreds of years, you know, you couldn't measure it. So, uh, but, you know, sooner or later, something's got to give here. I think, I think their agenda, well, John Christie, the great climate scientist, loved to put it this way. If it's not economically sustainable, it's not politically sustainable. And so, uh, you know, I think there, we, we did see some pushback, you know, in the, in, the, in the elections. I think we're going to see more in 2024. Mm, yeah, exactly. Huh. 
we lost a little bit of what you were saying about Liz Truss. Uh, can you oh. say that again? Yeah, well, I, you know, Liz Truss was briefly prime minister and one of her, one of her policies was to uh, suspend, or it was either to suspend or repeal the climate taxes on energy because, you know, the average Britain's energy bill is, has doubled, you know, over the last year. And so if you're, if you're a middle income household in Britain, you're really suffering right now. And a lot of, even more people than usual, Britain has always had this energy poverty problem, fuel poverty, where some, you know, pensioners and person, people who are not destitute, but, you know, who are at the bottom end of the economic ladder sometimes have to choose between heating and eating in the wintertime. And those people are really take, and it's, it's, you know, tens of thousands of people who are affected in this way. And, and those people are really taking it hard. And so, so it looked like Britain was, was ready to somehow walk back from the net zero agenda. But then Liz Trust, you know, was, was given the boot. So, uh, but, but maybe it, maybe, you know, if it, if this gets even worse, as I think it will, I think it'll have to get worse before it gets better. Uh, even the Brits will uh, will will have to rethink their attachment to climate purity. Well, I yeah. think I agree with that, uh, Marlo. But I, there's a glimmer of hope over in Germany, whose electric rights are tri uh, triple R's. They buy all their energy from uh, outside, and all of a sudden, in the last uh, few weeks. They've gone back to mining coal and the uh, what was had been a decision to shut off all their nuclear power plants. They're no longer uh, shutting those that are remaining. So that tells me uh, that Germany may have suffered enough that they're beginning to see uh, the way back. And I think there'll be other countries following suit. I think the winter in Europe this year will be uh, devastating enough to some countries that we'll see some changes there. But it's going to be a, a long march of, uh, of misery before we yes. can hope to turn the clock back. And uh, they are they want the world to be Marxist, to be communist. The, the leadership, no question about it. It's all uh, politics. And it's uh, it's very, very sad. Now, does the SEC have an enforcement arm uh, to carry out their edicts or uh, do they have a contract with the FBI to do that? <laughs> yeah, they have enforcement powers, sure. Um, and I'm sure they also refer certain cases to the Justice Department and the Justice Department is able to use the FBI in very creative ways, um, which are quite scary uh, or increasingly scary. But you know, looking again at Europe, you know, the Europeans acted as if energy security was no longer a concern. They didn't have to think about it. The only thing they needed to worry about was climate change. And so then they were content to let Russia be their, be their primary su supplier of natural gas, you know, as they are transitioning toward you know, a, a totally green energy system. And I mean, they have, they have, they have, you know, Britain has tremendous 
shale resources, and they just let all of that go. That because no, we're 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 on the march to net zero, so we can't keep our own energy uh, production, fossil energy production going. And then the irony is now now that the winter is approaching and Russia is deciding to play hard hardball with its natural gas. Oh my gosh, we have to use coal, which is even more carbon intensive. But one of the funny things, actually it's it's terribly sad, but it's funny only in the sense that it's an I ironic, is that one of the things that the climate nerds have been warning us about, the climate scolds, is that there will be millions of climate refugees and that climate change is the ultimate national security problem because we could have millions of climate refugees as people are driven out of their nations, their, 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 their traditional homesteads by severe weather, terrible weather. Well, you know, there are millions of Ukrainians, you know, who have fled their, their homeland and many of them living in Poland, you know, and it wasn't bad weather that drove them out. Um, you know, it was the same Russia that decided to use its natural gas as a weapon, and they're able to do that because the Europeans have decided, the Western Europeans have decided that we don't really need to produce any fossil fuels of our own. It just shows how backwards they get all of these risk calculations. Mm, yeah, I, I have one question to give our listeners a bit hope, a bit of hope on this. If I understand correctly, the SEC rule is only a proposed rule at this point. So is there any chance of actually stopping it? Well, the SEC rule is a proposed rule, and there was a comment period. It, the, the rule was proposed in March. The comment period ended in mid-June. And so, and then that for some reason, they decided that, uh, that they claimed it had to do with technical glitches in their software. They extended the comment period for another, I've forgotten, 45 days or something. Uh, but so anyway, there were lots of people who wrote in uh, basically saying what you're doing is illegal. You don't have the statutory authority and what you're doing will make uh, capital investment less efficient, not more efficient. You'll be destroying wealth. You won't be helping to build wealth. And, you know, and then uh, we also CEI submitted uh, my colleague, um, Richard Morrison, who's really an expert on e the ESG movement. Um, he submitted two comment letters. And as I mentioned before, I submitted one along with my late and dear friend, Patrick Michaels and uh, Kevin Diarotna at the Heritage Foundation. So it remains to be seen what they're going to do with it, uh, with this proposal. One of the things that may, it looks like is the most vulnerable is the, is the idea that uh, a publicly traded company should be somehow responsible for keeping track of and managing what are called scope three greenhouse gas emissions through its what they call its value chain. You know, we're 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 familiar with the term supply chain. Well, a value chain is even bigger, and and you know, it includes not just the people who who you buy from and the people who buy from and the people they buy from, but also the people you sell to. And so the idea is that somehow uh, these big publicly traded companies should be evaluated in terms of their compliance based on how they monitor and 
manage these risks that they claim propagate through the entire value chain. And this, uh, a lot of people's antennas went up as danger, Will Robinson, because a lot of the companies that are in a value chain are not themselves publicly traded. They're small companies, you know, independent contractors of various kinds. And so they don't have the resources, even if they wanted to, to keep track of their carbon emissions, their carbon intensity, you know. And so that would mean that maybe the big guys, the publicly traded companies would say, you know, I can't really afford to do business with you anymore because you don't provide me with enough data that I can report to the SEC. And because I'm not in a position also to manage you, to help you become less carbon intensive. And so a lot of people realize that this is a, a threat to those smaller firms. And so that part of the proposal may be the one that they're willing to sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Well, let's hope so. We have to wrap up now, unfortunately. It's been a very interesting discussion, to say the least. And we're very grateful that S um, CEI have actually put in their own comments to show how ridiculous this is that the Security and Exchange Commission gets involved in enforcing global warming rules. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It so, is. yeah, our guest today has been Dr. Marlo Lewis, a senior fellow at the Washington, D.C. based Competitive Enterprise Institute. And we've been learning a lot about this SEC issue and COP27. So, it's been great having you on, Marlo. Hey, Tom and Jay, I really enjoyed it. And you guys are doing a great service to humanity and liberty. <laughs> yeah, and so are you. So this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story.